The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Again, that's page 872 of your the chair Bibles. And we're reading Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please take one of these as our gift to you. That's Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, on page 872. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which to work, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And, not, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Is it like a grain? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is your word we get to encounter again together. Lord, help us just to pause and realize what that means, Lord, to, to believe that as we meet in the name of Jesus under the scriptures, God, that you are speaking. Uh, you're speaking to the world, but you're speaking to us. Uh, so, Lord, I just pray for your help. Please help me um, to teach this faithfully and clearly, and we ask together, Lord, that our time together would be far more than just someone giving a speech, but it would be our hearts and our minds encountering your living and active word. Um, help us to see what and who you want us to see. Um, do your work within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was uh, pondering this passage, a question came into my mind, and it's this. It's kind of a hard question. It's, if Christianity is true, then why does it so often look so unimpressive? Have you ever had that question? If Christianity is true, why does it so often look so unimpressive? So for instance, uh, I, think, I think a lot of you in here are Christians, right? And wouldn't you say that you believe Jesus today, in actual point of fact, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? You believe that? Do you believe he's king, okay? Yet wouldn't you have to admit that his kingship isn't explicitly or apparently felt in a lot of the injustice of the world? Like if, if he's king, 
then why in that moment is he not look like he's king? Or how about this? Uh, you believe Jesus is king overall, and yet what percentage of the power structures of today's world, the leaders or celebrities or notable people of today's world, if Jesus is king, what percentage of the, of the power brokers of today's world actually respect him in any way? Wouldn't you say it's rather small? If he's king overall, it does, sometimes it doesn't look like it. Or we say Jesus is king overall, and maybe this is the most painful part. How often does his church look so unimpressive? And, uh, you know, that's a fun game to play because we can all tell stories about how bad they look. Let's turn that train around. If Christianity is true, why am I so unimpressive? Why do I struggle with obedience? How about you? So it's an important question, isn't it? Uh, some people doubt the faith over questions like these. Some people doubt themselves over questions like these. I can't go into detailed answers on all of that. All I'm asking to start is, if it's true, why does it so often look so unimpressive? I actually think Jesus is gonna speak to that a little bit this morning. And, and what we're gonna find, of course, is our, our problem is not with our king, oh no. And the problem isn't really with his kingdom. A major problem is whether or not you can see the kingdom. It's whether or not you and I can see the kingdom. So as you know, if you've been here for a while, we've been studying through Luke's gospel, this account of Jesus' life. Uh, generally speaking, chapters one to nine are about who Jesus is. He's the promised king. He fulfills all the promises of God from what we would call the Old Testament. He is the Christ. He's the son of God. Chapter nine, he starts, Luke tells us, heading towards Jerusalem. And he's going there on purpose. He's going there uh, with, a, with a reason. And of course, he's going there to die for sins. Nine to, 20, to, to, uh, nine to 19 then are about what it means to follow Jesus on this road. What's it mean to be a follower? What's it mean to be his disciple? So this morning we're gonna see Jesus do something rather normal that he did quite often. He's gonna go to a synagogue and he's gonna preach. This was a regular occurrence for Jesus. Uh, he was always at church growing up and in his ministry he was always preaching. But in this specific account, this incredible incident is gonna take place during this church service, you could wish something like that would happen here. Um, and so there's gonna be this incident. The incident's gonna lead to this confrontation. There's gonna be a little, a little debate here. Then after the confrontation, Jesus is gonna give an interpretation all about the nature of his kingdom. It's all about the nature of his kingdom and whether or not we can see it. So the text, I think, raises these questions, and I, and I would hope that you could ask them of yourself as we go through the text. Number one, can you see the kingdom? Can you see it? Can you see it where it is for what it is? And another question that's related to it is, will you see the kingdom? Will you see it as in, will you enjoy it? Will you be a participator in it? Um, Will you experience it? Can you see it? Will you see it? 
So let's uh, work through this story together. I want to take it in four major parts. Number one, we're going to look at the, what we could call the incident that happens on this Sabbath morning. Then number two, we'll consider the confrontation that Jesus has with the synagogue leader. Then we'll look at Jesus' explanation. We'll see that in those two parables. And then follow, finally, we'll close in thinking about his liberation. So incident, confrontation, explanation, liberation. Begin with verse 10. Here's the start of the incident. Verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. You might ask, well, what's a synagogue? I, it's probably safe to say, right, it's a, it's a local church kind of experience within that Israelite village. People would have a meeting room. There'd be a seat where somebody teaches. There'd be other seats where people listen. Um, so it's, it's kind of like the local church. It would also have a synagogue leader. And this man would be very influential, very powerful in that community. This is, a, this is a religious culture. And so religious leaders have clout in all aspects of life. His job is to be an example as a leader and specifically to maintain the reading and teaching of the law. So kind of sort of what I'm trying to do right now. They would meet on the Sabbath to worship. Have you heard of that word, the Sabbath? It's huge for Jewish worship, right? It's a pillar of Jewish worship. What's the fourth of the Ten Commandments? You have to sing the little, I have to sing the song in my head. You remember it, you know? Keep the Sabbath day holy, right? Keep the Sabbath day holy. It's a day where you would stop your normal work and, and you would stop all the, the normal activities that drag you down and you would set this day apart to rest in God and what he's done for you, what he will do for you, and specifically to focus on him, to worship him. I wanna go back, uh, I think it's worth it here, go back to Deuteronomy chapter five and just show you one little section of, of the Old Testament that talks about the Sabbath. It's pertinent for this text today. So look, we'll start at Deuteronomy five, verse 12. There Moses says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may what? Rest as well as you. Now look at verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So what's part of the context of this Sabbath when we see it? What was Israel before God saved them? Slaves. In Egypt, how many weekends did they get off during that experience? None. What was the description of their life, right? Whips, chains, slave, toil, work. When do they rest? Never. And who are they in this context? What's their great and glorious identity that they have? Your property. You're nothing. You, you meet the pleasure of the master. So it's this deep oppression and then God, in his great kindness, right, in his mercy, he goes and he saves them. Did he save them because they were all PhDs? Did he save them because they were wealthy? Did he save them because they were so ethically and morally, you know, 
perfected. No and no and no. Did, did his saving of them have anything to do with their deserving? No. What did they have to offer? Nothing. Weakness. Problems. And then God comes as a savior. He wrecks Egypt, right? Wrecks them and brings them into a land. And now he says, now that you've been set free and liberated to be my people, to worship me. Hey, set apart a day. And now you see the Sabbath is not about chains. It's about freedom. We've been set free and we can actually rest in this great God who's loved us and saved us. And so it's so interesting, what, what did an Israelite have to offer to his servants then on the Sabbath day? Can the Israelite man be like, hey, I'm going to kick it, it's my day to rest, work. Is he allowed to do that? No, who rests in Israel on the Sabbath? Everything, everyone. This is going to be a different nation. Even the servants get weekends in Israel. So there's this sense, don't you see it, in the Sabbath of liberation, of freedom, of joy, of time to actually spend in leisure to the point where you can rest in God and worship who he is. You remember that you were slaves, but you've been set free. It's very interesting for this passage. As we get to, uh, you know, back into the world of Jesus speaking at the synagogue, you know, we remember that the the Sabbath day by this point has become really calcified. So um, you could read, if you wanted to, the rabbinical literature about all the commands that the, the Pharisees and the scribes would make to kind of protect the one command, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. They would add extra commands to the point where they would count how many steps you're allowed to take. This far and no further. They would, they, they would talk about what kind of a jewelry a woman could wear, and if it was heavier than a fig, that counts as work. It's like carrying produce. Okay? Or you can't spit on the Sabbath. Do you know why? Well, because when you are in an agricultural society, you need to water your plants, and that's work. And if you spit, that's like water hitting the ground. That's like working. Do you see what's happening? All of a sudden, this day that's meant to represent freedom and rest, how does it sound to you? <laughs> Religious slavery. Oppression. So here you've got Jesus coming in on the Sabbath, teaching, and all this kind of stuff is in the context, it's in the room. Who does he see? Verse 11, and behold. Behold is a word that kind of wants to jerk your chin up, jerk your eyes to something. Behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Physically, this lady probably has, I'm gonna do my best shot here, spondylitis ankylopoietica. Okay, nurses in the room, was I I close? Okay, close, close. It's a terrible condition. It's a terrible condition. Your spine over time fuses together Uh, There's this arthritic pain, and over the years, as it gets worse and worse, literally, you just, you're bent more and more and more to where you're always bent. So I actually heard one speaker talk about, he had a friend who had this very condition. He used to play soccer with him, and now the guy can't, he has to be fed, you know, his wife has to feed him with a spoon. He's bent over and stuck that way. Just imagine what that would be like. 
Imagine what that would be like. Imagine what that would be like socially. Imagine what that would be like for your career. Imagine what that would be like for family. Imagine what that would be like. Add to it you're in the ancient world. Imagine what that would be like. What could you possibly do for yourself in the ancient world? There's, there's no welfare. There's no health care. You, you are totally hopeless and totally helpless. Add to that a religious society, and we've seen it through the last few weeks, haven't we? There was this assumption that, if you, that you're, the state of your righteousness is reflected in the state of your circumstances, right? So if you're rich or smart or a synagogue leader or healthy, that's because you're a good person and God is smiling on you. And if you're poor or if you're bent over with spondylitis ankylopoletica, <laughs> that's because you, you deserve it. Remember we looked at John uh, last week where the disciples themselves see a man born blind and they say, well, whose fault of it? Was it this guy or his parents? You remember Jesus' answer? You know, let me summarize it. No. No. But that's who this woman is. She's, she's helpless. She's hopeless. She, she wears a stigma of being less valuable, dirty. What can she do? What can she offer? What can she bring? Nothing. Who does Jesus point out? Who is Jesus drawn to? Who does Jesus see? It's her. I love this so much. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Wouldn't you love to have a little Bible time machine and go and sit in some rooms? Maybe they have this as a ride in heaven or something, you know? I'm going there one day and you're sitting in this little dusty synagogue and there's this woman, right, half led in, half hobbled in. She's in the back corner. There's Jesus. There's all this tension because of who he is and what people think about him. There's a kind of stiff, we're gonna meet this guy, Mr. Joy, synagogue leader. He's kind of watching everything. He's in charge. He's smart. He knows the rules. Jesus gets up there. He's starting to preach and he sees her and then he calls her to himself. And at first you think, that's not nice. She can hardly walk. And all the attention is on her, right? He calls her to himself. And so how long does it take for her to half shuffle, crawl up there? She's bent over. She can't even maybe look up to see his face. He lays his hands on her and says, you are freed from your disability. And then we all watch our jaws drop as her body straightens. And what would you be like if you were in that room? Ha, oh, right? Wow, wow. And what is she like? How much would you pay to see her face change from frustrated, sad, depressed, why are you calling me up here to, oh my goodness. And I, <laughs> did you see what she did? Immediately she was made straight and what did she do? She glorified God. Welcome to the new synagogue worship leader. <laughs> Start the music, Joe, right? We're all gonna stand for this one because <laughs> I can stand. She's glorifying God and you see Jesus has set her free. 
And he uses language like we saw in that Sabbath text. She was bound. There was a spiritual aspect to this. Somehow she was bound by Satan for 18 years. She's physically bound. She's spiritually bound. She's sociologically bound and tied up. And Jesus comes to her, the one who has nothing to offer, and says, you, I'm setting you free. And he sets her free physically. He sets her free Relationally, why did he call her up? Why didn't he do this after service in the office? Because everybody has to see. Did you hear what he called her? This is a daughter of Abraham right here. This is my girl right here. He brought her up. Everybody saw she's straight. She's restored into the community. He's, he's set her free physically, socially, and he set her free from the heart because what's her first response Not everybody Jesus healed was like this. There's a lot of people Jesus healed who weren't like this. But this lady, what does she do when she's healed? She praises God. She has been set free. And who took the initiative? Was the synagogue leader like, hey, can you help out out our sister over here? Heard you do miracles sometimes. No, that's not happening. Was she like running to catch up with Jesus? You know, she can't do that. Who takes the initiative? It's all him. It's all him. Wow. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what he loves to do. This is what he said in his first sermon we heard in Luke, right? In the first synagogue. Let's remember it, Luke 4, 18 to 19. Here Jesus is fulfilling uh, the prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is saying, I am the promised king. I'm the what? I'm the king, Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus brings the liberating power of God's grace to the helpless, undeserving. Yes, financially poor, spiritually poor. This is the heart of the Sabbath, isn't it? Based on what we saw in Deuteronomy. Isn't this, didn't Jesus do what's at the heart of the Sabbath? Set someone free so that that person could now rest in and worship God. That's Deuteronomy 5. Now we see the confrontation. So we've seen the incident, now we see the confrontation. I don't know, if something like that happened in our service, how many of y'all would be like? Right, it'd be a party, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a party? What a party. And, and we see the spirit of the people there generally, it, they want it to be a party, except for this guy. Look at this guy, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, what's that next word? Do you see it? Verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. Indignant means angry, frustrated, to the point of being fed up. Ugh. Ugh. Indignant. He's indignant. Why is he indignant? Did you see it? Because Jesus, what? Healed on the Sabbath. How many of you are thinking, I don't get it? Why are you angry? I don't understand. (laughs) I don't get it. Look at what he says, verse 14. He says to the people, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. We're reading this and going, I, what? I mean, aren't you kind of amazed by this person? You would think that the combined power and mercy of the miracle would somehow be moving to this person. I mean, how long do you think this lady's been going to this synagogue? This is not modern America where you can just, you know, you could go to 23 different churches within five square miles, right? You could just migrate. We could never see you again. You could church shop. And you could go every Sunday. No, there's, there's one synagogue for her village. How long has she been going to the synagogue? Probably, most likely. Since she was born. This man knows her. He has responsibility for her. And you'd think he'd be at least happy that this lady can now stand up straight. Oh, no, he doesn't care about that. Or you think, you know, I've never had a guest preacher come in and start working miracles. Have y'all done that? Has that ever happened when I was gone one Sunday? You know, you'd think it would at least be like, who are you? That can totally change someone's body with a word. You think there'd be something like that? Both of those ideas are just, you know. He cannot see it. He can't see what we're all seeing. It makes no difference to him. There's one thing that he sees, and what is it? You did something on the Sabbath day. You broke our rules. In fact, he didn't even break a rule. You know why he didn't break a rule? Because I don't think they ever made a rule that says, you can't do miracles with a word on the Sabbath day. Because why would you make that rule? Because no one can do miracles with a word. Jesus didn't break a rule. That's all this guy can see. And the, the irony of this man is amazing. Wouldn't this man claim that he's waiting for the Messiah? Oh, yeah. He would tell you all about it. He's waiting for God's king to come. But the king he wants and expects will be a king who gives him, oh, go destroy Rome. Go make Israel rich again. Come and validate me as a religious leader. That's what he's looking for. And the irony is he's waiting for the king and who's standing right next to him? The king. And wouldn't this man claim to love God? Wouldn't he claim to love God? I love you, Lord. And wouldn't he claim to want to obey the commands like love your neighbor? Wouldn't he claim those things? And yet, the son of God is right there next to him. And did you hear the man's kind of accusation? He sees Jesus do the miracle. Does he even talk to Jesus and say, hey, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath in here? Did he even talk to Jesus? He speaks around him and talks to the crowd. You ever had somebody talk to you in a passive-aggressive way? I have. Have you ever talking, talking, talked? I'm a professional communicator. Have you ever talking? No, we haven't, because that's not a word. Have you ever spoken to someone in a passive aggressive way? It is the greatest insult. You, you demean people around, you know, around the back. Don't even give them the dignity of a straight up disagreement. It just comes as a cut. And so here this man is saying to the people, hey, you wanna get healed? Come back when it's not the Sabbath. And what he's saying to Jesus without saying it is, 
You don't even keep the law. You're a false teacher and nobody should trust you. We wish you weren't here. That's what he's saying. The man who claims to love God is accusing and blaspheming God. It's amazing. And what does he believe about himself simultaneously? Do you see this? What does he believe about himself simultaneously? I'm the synagogue ruler. Do you see what's happening here? He believes he's righteous. How righteous is he? Other than hating God and hating his neighbor, he's great, okay? He believes he's waiting for the king. The king is next to him. How much does he love the king? Zero. But he can't see any of it. He can't see it. It's easy to judge him, isn't it? I could probably go on for 10 more minutes judging him. Isn't it kind of fun to judge him? I mean, who is more blind and self-righteous than this dude right here? He's amazing. As easy it is as it is to judge him, I will propose to you it's even easier to be just like him. It's easy to be like him. Have you ever taken pride in your religious practice? Your religious knowledge? Have you ever thought you were right with God because of your moral performance compared to some other people you know? Have you ever demeaned Jesus' words and put your standards for life above what he says in the scriptures? Have you ever looked at what he said and said, that's too hard, that's too high, I'll go my way? Have you ever thought you were better than others based on some sort of religious knowledge or performance? Then we're, then we're like him. We're more like him than we think, aren't we? So the Lord is gonna answer him. I love what Luke does in verse 15. What's the third word there? Then the? The Lord. Why does he drop that on you? Well, the synagogue leader, who, who, who's in charge according to the synagogue leader? Hey, look, this is my synagogue. I got my rules here. These are my people. And Luke just wants to drop this down. Then the Lord spoke. Lord of what? Well, he just touched someone and totally healed their body. So I'm gonna go ahead and say he's Lord of nature. Lord of what? He's the one who wrote the Sabbath command. Other places in scripture, he's Lord of the Sabbath. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. What does he deserve from all creation? What does he deserve from me and you? Worship, awe, reverence, obedience, trust. He's the Lord and he deserves our attention. And look what he says to this man and his group. The Lord answers him, verse 15, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? It's an actor, believes one thing and acts another way. 
And Jesus, even, Jesus isn't even gonna go into like scripture text with the man. He's just gonna go into the man's own lifestyle. Maybe Jesus walked by his yard on the way or something. And he says to the man, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And what's, that's a rhetorical question. What's the obvious answer for these folks? Yep. So Jesus argues in from the lesser to the greater, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? So he goes right at the man's anger. The man's anger, Jesus did, a miracle to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, all right, let's talk about it. You untie your animals on the Sabbath. And just, you know, why? Why do they do that? It's obvious, but why? To care for the animals. The animals have a certain value and they need certain care. And are they gonna not let the animal drink water or eat because it's the Sabbath? No, they're gonna feed and water their animal because they, it has some value. Lesser the greater, Jesus says, you untie your animals on the Sabbath. Shouldn't I untie this daughter of Abraham on the Sabbath? You water your animals on the Sabbath. Shouldn't I heal her on the Sabbath? Your animals have to wait a couple hours, but not too long. She had to wait 18 years. You do it on the Sabbath for them. So by your own lifestyle, you would agree then that I should do this on the Sabbath for her because she's valuable and she has needs and here I am. And I love uh, the response. Verse 17, what is their response? As he said all these things, all his adversaries were what? Put to shame. What is their response? We don't have a response. We're caught red-handed. We're exposed. Jesus is trying to help them see. He's trying to help them see what they can't see. Remember this guy, he can't see the king. He can't see the kingdom. He can't see himself. He's got this pretend world where he's a good person and he's in charge and people have to follow his traditions and he's so into that that anything that threatens that makes him angry. Maybe some of you are angry right now. It makes him angry to the point where he's got to cling to the story of his goodness, of his rightness, to the point where he cannot see the obvious right next to him, the very King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who has just brought the kingdom. It's amazing. And Jesus is trying to help him see. Now the interpretation, you know, it's really important for understanding the story. Look at verse 18. Uh, Luke writes, he said, what's the third word? Therefore, so it's the old, you know, the old, the old tip here. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's, that's right, therefore. Did y'all grab that? That's amazing. Free little nugget for you today. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. There's a cause and effect here, right? There's a connection here. This, then that, these things go together. So you can't understand the first story unless you connect it to what comes right here because Jesus said he did all these things and then he said, therefore, this explains that. And so these parables, 
Help us understand the story, and the story help us understand the parables. So here's parable one. He said, therefore, verse 18, this is now the interpretation. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? I mean, you just wonder, what's he gonna drop next? It could be, I don't know. And then here's what Jesus picks. This is what my kingdom's like, Jesus says. It's like a what? A grain of a mustard seed. Maybe we just pause right there for a moment. Have you ever seen a sports team with the mascot being a mustard seed? Right? If you're gonna have a sports team, you gotta have something like what? Rams, you know. But mustard seeds, why would you never pick mustard seed? Because they're almost nothing. They're tiny, they're little, they're humble. And Jesus says, you wanna compare my kingdom to something? Mustard seed. Do you see why we've been calling this sermon series the Upside Down Kingdom? Everything's upside down. Nothing's what you would expect. The mustard seed in Jewish life was proverbial for a small start with a big finish. A small start with a big finish. So if you're gonna plant your garden, you would know that the mustard seed is the tiniest of tiny seeds and it became kind of proverbial language for something that's super small. Boy, that's as small as a mustard seed. Other places Jesus will say, even if you have faith like a, a mustard seed, the point is, even if it's really small, well, my kingdom is like a mustard seed a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a what? A tree. So in Israelite life, the mustard seed really is the biggest of the garden plants. It can get like 12, 15 feet high supposedly, really wide. It's like a half thicket, half tree. So big that birds will come and build permanent nests in the tree. So it's a really simple idea. Sometimes the most humble start brings the most massive of finishes. Sometimes the most humble of starts will bring the most massive of finishes. And isn't this true in the Gospel of Luke? To whom was Jesus born? Queen and royalty? No, a, a normal, a normal, humble young lady. And where was he born? Right, a palace. No. He, his first nap was in an animal feeding trough. Um, who, fo- who followed him? All the priests, all the scribes, all the kings, all the power brokers. Are they the ones who followed him? No, he picked a couple fishermen and a tax collector. And, and then you read the stories that they report about themselves. Are they super geniuses or are they kind of, Not the brightest crown in the crayon box. And they're honest about that. Jesus came so humbly, you almost can't describe it. So humbly. Not only did he come so humbly, but who did he come for? Who's he want to have an interaction with? The big powerful synagogue ruler? Or the bent over nobody lady in the back? And he says, I want to talk to you comes for the humble. Who are the people that are into him? Roman centurions, prostitutes, tax collectors. And he liberates the oppressed. It's an upside down kingdom, isn't it? The all glorious one came and became a man and he was poor and he was humble. 
and he came for humble people. And human power and pride and accomplishment is rejected as unimpressive. And those who come with zero, nothing, nobodies, those are the ones who are received. It's all upside down. Why does Christianity look so unimpressive so often? Because it's the upside down kingdom. Because he comes to the humble, to the poor, to the corners, to the nobodies. He's not impressed with what we are impressed by. You ever heard somebody say, wouldn't it be great if this amazing celebrity became a Christian? And then they could use their influence to show and tell everyone. I won't say I disagree with it. That'd be nice. But we look at the amazing celebrity person and go, whoa. Jesus does not look at that person like that. And he is just as excited to go to the poor old nobody in the corner and say, come to me. Because all the things we think we have to offer, our intelligence, our coolness, our youth, our health, our wealth, our smartness, our morality, our self-righteousness, Jesus is totally unimpressed. The best thing, actually, you can bring to Jesus is what? Nothing. And because of that, everything. Do you see that? Bring nothing, and because of that, everything. The self-righteous person wants to bring something. Oh, Jesus, I'll give you some lip service. Maybe you're a good teacher. But I'm keeping my life for myself because I obey certain rules, and we can deal that way. The person who comes with nothing says, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to take pride in on my own. Please just receive me, and now that you've received me, I give you what? Everything. See, grace, you don't need anything to receive grace, but grace will motivate you to give everything. The kingdom is like this. Why did Jesus mention birds and nests in the bush? If you read Old Testament prophets and they talk about dynasties or kingdoms, they'll call them trees. And so when, he, when, uh, when one prophet's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, he, he, says, he talks about how he's providing and caring for all the nations. And guess what they're called? Birds in the air. The nests. And so this, this is Jesus' little hint that this thing that starts so small in this nowhere place with these nowhere people is going to grow so big that it becomes a kingdom where all the nations are now coming to rest in this tree. And guess what? Here you are. Has it, has it kind of been true? Did the little mustard seed grow to become a big tree? Guess what the biggest religion in the world is? Christianity, maybe more importantly, guess what the most diverse religion in the world is? Christianity. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Can you see it? Look at the next parable. He said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Again, I don't know of a rock band or a sports team that calls themselves, you know, the leaven. What is leaven? Do any of you even cook bread anymore? I don't know experientially. I've just heard, right? You have dough and leaven. Again, is it big, powerful, like lightning? No, it's this almost imperceptible grain of nothing. It's so small. 
hardly see it, and yet you mix it into the dough, and what happens to the dough? It actually transforms the internal chemistry of the whole thing. It's made it from one thing into another. And Jesus says, my kingdom is like that. It starts so small. When you put leaven into dough, can you like see fireworks happening? You know, does it instantly start, you know, oozing and bubbling? Or you mix it in and you're like, I don't think anything changed. But just wait. Everything will change. What an awesome idea. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen at Jerusalem? You know the rest of the story, right? What's going to happen? They're going to hang him up on a cross. How impressive did the kingdom look in that moment? Here's our king. Here's our king. Strapped to wood with nails. Demeaned, mocked, hated. His own disciples ran from him. How successful is our king? What does he have to offer? It's just another crucified nobody. So small. Not even existent. And yet the leaven was put into the tomb. And the chemistry changed. And he rose from the dead. And his people saw it. And they believed it. And what happened to them? When they saw the resurrected Christ, did they grow six inches? Did they start glowing? No, but did they get transformed? Oh, yeah. And now when you preach this gospel, and somebody hears and sees who Jesus is and what he's done, that he wasn't failing on the cross. He was dying for your failures on the cross. When you see who he is and his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection, and then his call to you where he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners, which makes us check our synagogue ruler heart. How good are we really? What do I really have to offer? And then when we find that spiritually we're the bent over lady, we're broken, we're bound, and the only one that can set us free is Jesus. And we look to him and we trust him. Guess what we're gonna see? He'll straighten you up. And he'll set you free to praise him. To praise him. And you'll be transformed. You'll be transformed. There's a text in Matthew where he says the righteous are going to shine like the sun. Now look around, just real quick, look around. Most of you are incredibly beautiful people, right? There's going to be a day where if you had a second look at that person, and you saw them in your present state now, and you saw them what they will be then, there's gonna be a day where you would fall on your face in fear. If I saw the glorified you right now, I would have to shade my eyes because you're gonna shine like the sun when you are glorified in Christ. You're gonna be overwhelming when you are fully, when, when you are fully mature in what he has for you, when the leaven has done its work. You're gonna be transformed. And aren't you being transformed right now? Just a little bit, just a little bit. 
Let me, let me show you some other, other text to put this together. Look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. Here Paul, here Paul is going to tell the church to act in humility towards one another. I want you to grab onto why he says that. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do, what's the second word? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, okay? There you go. There's your homework for the week. You have plenty to work on. How much should you do out of selfishness this week? Nothing. Well, I just have to meet my self-needs. Nope. Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, where? In Christ Jesus. Now look at his humility. Verse six, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the kicker. There's our favorite word, verse nine. What? Therefore, because he humbled himself in this way, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Did you see the mustard seed grow into the tree? The nothing of humility and death becomes the king of kings. Or this one. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul says, we don't lose heart. Maybe some of you can identify with this next phrase. Though our outer self is wasting away. Does anybody like? What else is happening? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. The yeast of the gospel is changing you. It's changing you. It's changing who you are. Why does the kingdom look so unimpressive? There's a lot of answers to that, right? Number world, number one, a self-righteous world can't see it. That's number one. A self-righteous world can't see it. Self-righteous people can't see it. You can't see yourself. You can't see Jesus. You can't see what he's done. But it's come and it's growing. It's gonna take over everything. And for the humble, it's going to transform them. One last text, Luke 18, 13. Such an important text in Luke, Luke 18, 13. Jesus tells another story, a difference between two people. You could put synagogue ruler and bent over lady. In this story, Jesus puts Pharisee and tax collector. The Pharisee has it together, knows religious words, doesn't live it. The tax collector, dumpster fire of a resume. 
Every sin, he's committed it. Every command, he's broken. But look at this moment that changes everything. Luke 18, 13. Jesus says, with the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, and what did he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's learned something. What does he have to offer God? Nothing. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Which man? The humble tax collector went justified, made right with God. And then he says, rather than the other who was not right with God, the self-righteous person. And then here's Jesus' conclusion. For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What should we do, church, with this passage? Well, number one, can you see yourself? Can you see yourself? Are you like the synagogue ruler? All put together, God owes you stuff. You obey some of the commands and therefore you're good. Jesus would say, I think you're being a hypocrite. Can you see yourself as someone with nothing who has need for Jesus to set them free? Number two, can you see the king? Can you see the king? He didn't come to be on the cover of magazines. He didn't come to be the next celebrity. He came to save Sinners from their sins. And he did it by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Can you see what he's done for you? Have you trusted yourself to him? What are you now offering him? What are you withholding? Can you see who he is as the king and will you offer everything? And then third, can you see the kingdom? Can you see the kingdom? You know, I think of our church uh, there's a lot where if it was like um, awesome churches of America, I don't know if we would make that calendar. You know, would we be like December? Um, are we going to win awards for our five-star buildings and equipment? Are we uh, busting at the seams? Are we doing world-changing productions? Uh, do we have the greatest all-put-together pastor? No. Do we have the most all-put-together people? Are we the the leaders of the world, the smartest, the most successful. I mean, what are we? Guess where the kingdom is? It's right here. I see it in you. Hopefully you can see it in me. Jesus is king. And he's come to people who couldn't offer him anything and he's made them children of God. And the little leaven is stirring in you working in you, and that is the kingdom. Jesus King, in your mind, your heart, your life. The world might not see it, Jesus sees it. Do we see it? Are you gonna partner in the kingdom? Are you gonna celebrate the kingdom, enjoy the kingdom, work in the kingdom? Are you gonna pursue what God has for you, what God has for others? Are you all in, sold out to following the king and what he wants in this world? 
That's what this passage motivates us to, isn't it? It's growing. It's changing us. It's not always apparent, but it's there. It's real. See yourself. See the king. See the kingdom. And one day, he'll come back. And then we'll really see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for including us in your kingdom. We thank you that we don't have to have it all together because none of us do. We thank you for the perfection of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you for how you are working in us and changing in us, uh, changing us. Lord, we pray for every heart in here that you would give us submissive hearts, humble hearts uh, to look to you for all we need to submit to you for everything we need to offer to you all that we are. Uh, because of what you've done for us, because of who you are to us. Lord, let your kingdom come in the world, especially in our church, and especially in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.